Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back. Hour number two of Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN, the final show of 2021. And our guest this segment is Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown. Uh, Mayor Brown, good morning. Good morning, Joe. Uh, Mayor Brown, there's uh, some news that's been coming down over the last few hours and wanted to get your take on it. Buffalo Police uh, Commissioner Byron Lockwood is stepping down um, in February. What are your uh, comments on that? Uh, Commissioner Lockwood served our city extremely well. He's a more than 33-year veteran of the Buffalo Police Department. very sad uh, to see him retiring. He's done an excellent job, uh, but we have a deep bench in the Buffalo Police Department, and we will continue to work hard to deliver excellent public safety services to the residents of our community. Now, Mayor Brown, on Friday, we uh, obviously we've been talking since the windstorm about the uh, the great northern grain elevator uh, after the damage that was sustained. And on Friday, the city of Buffalo gave ADM the um, permission to tear it down. Uh, where are we with that this morning? Uh, the great northern grain elevator, a historically significant structure, unfortunately, due to significant damage from the windstorm and a thorough inspection done by the Commissioner of Permits and Inspections, the Commissioner of Fire, they believed uh, from their investigation with their staff that the building uh, represents an imminent danger to the community and uh, ordered an emergency demolition. Because of a building of that size and magnitude, Uh, It could take weeks before the demolition actually begins, and it could take up to six months for the demolition to be completed. Now, separate from the action of the commissioner to order the demolition, I have had conversations with um, Archer Daniels Midland. I've asked them to consider uh, the historic significance of the building and to preserve all or parts of the structure, and they are considering that. Have uh, Have you heard from preservationists? Have you heard, uh, since you, we heard from you on Friday, uh, have you heard back from some uh, people in the community? Uh, yes, 
we have, we've heard from uh, preservationists and others in the community who are unhappy uh, that the building might be demolished. They don't want to see the demolition of this uh, significant historic structure. And so um, it is our hope that ADM, a multinational corporation uh, that is extremely well-resourced, will also recognize the historic significance of this structure and make the decision to preserve all or part of it. Now, ADM is in the building right next to the grain elevators. Do you know at this time what their plans may be uh, if they do tear the um, grain elevators down? Do they have plans to put something on that property? Uh, we have not been told uh, that they have plans to put something else on the property. They uh, employ over 100 people in Buffalo currently. Uh, as I indicated, they are an extremely large global corporation. Uh, they are called the supermarket to the world. So they are extremely well resourced. And um, uh, we are hoping uh, that they will uh, fully consider the request that has been made to preserve the structure. And have you heard back from ADM when you asked about uh, preserving some of the building, all of the building? Have they commented on uh, the potential of that? Uh, have not heard back from them yet. Uh, I am pleased that they were willing to entertain and consider the request. They recognize the historic significance of the structure. I think now the... Uh, Great Northern Grain Elevator is probably the last remaining structure of this type in the United States of America. ADM recognizes that. And so we are hopeful uh, that they will decide that the building is worth preserving uh, and they will preserve all or, or part of it uh, so uh, people can... Uh, continue to see uh, the grain milling history, not only in Buffalo, but in our country. Would there be any situation where the city of Buffalo would get any kind of control over that building? Uh, the city of Buffalo would not want to step into financial liability for the structure. Uh, this is a challenge that we deal with from time to time. Uh, there are numbers of historic structures or significant structures in the city that are privately owned, uh, that are owned uh, by private owners uh, who have the responsibility of maintaining those structures or protecting and preserving those structures. Oftentimes we get into situations where private owners do not do what they're supposed to do, don't have the resources to protect, preserve, maintain structures, and the city really avoids placing that liability on our residents. I know Congressman uh, Brian Higgins was very vocal about this uh, last week um, when we were seeing what was going to happen with this. Has he reached out to you? Have you two spoken about this in the last week? 
Uh, Congressman Higgins and I have not spoken directly about this. Uh, he made his position and his thoughts uh, public. I am not unsympathetic to his position. Uh, he mentioned uh, the potential of historic tax credits for the structure. I agree with him. There is uh, the potential that there could be uh, significant historic tax credits that could be utilized for this structure. What the amount is, how that would be applied at this point, I don't really know. Uh, but that would be all part of the consideration that we would ask ADM to apply to their decision-making process as to preserving the structure. Now, Mayor Brown, as I mentioned, this is the uh, final hard line of 2021. And obviously, one of the big political stories was your reelection here in Buffalo. So as you uh, get ready for your fifth term as mayor of Buffalo, what are you looking forward to in the new year for the city of Buffalo? Uh, we're looking forward to continuing to build the city to accelerate economic development, uh, to make sure that we are seeing development uh, in every section of our city, increase, speed up. We want to create more jobs for the residents of the city and region. We have ideas for how to do that currently as we speak. Uh, already uh, in 2021, there has been over $540 million of development. Uh, we expect to uh, increase that in 2022 going forward. So we're looking forward to a prosperous new year. And one of the things that we want to continue to do is work with uh, federal, state, and county government on getting through the COVID-19 pandemic, making sure that our residents are safe. And uh, our goal is to be one of the communities in this country that recovers the most quickly from the COVID-19 pandemic. Speaking of uh, COVID-19, um, we talked with uh, Kevin Hardwick in the last uh, hour about the testing vote in the county. Uh, at a city level, um, what do you think of making COVID tests more accessible to residents of Buffalo? Free COVID tests, I should say. Well, in, in Erie County, uh, the mandate for the delivery of health services rests with Erie County government. Uh, the county and the state and the federal government, from that, for that matter, have partnered uh, very closely. Uh, the city has worked with county, state, and federal government. Uh, we have in the past um, uh, worked together to offer free testing, uh, to offer um, uh, vaccination to members of the community. That needs to continue uh, to happen. There needs to be resources for testing and vaccination. I think the magnitude of the costs probably exceeds the resources of county government, potentially even state government. So there, continu there continues to need to be federal assistance, not only for our community, uh, but communities all across the country.
And looking to next year, obviously, as you said, Mayor Brown, COVID will be the main thing. But we also are seeing at a county level the uh, the Bills new stadium being uh, mentioned and obviously Orchard Park and the city of Buffalo being mentioned. As the mayor of Buffalo, um, what kind of push would you make for a stadium in the city of Buffalo? Well, I think I've been very clear on this. I think the number one priority for our community is to keep the Buffalo Bills in our community. I think where they physically play is not as important as keeping the Bills in our community. And I think the longer uh, the stadium negotiations go, uh, the greater the potential is that we could lose the Bills in our community, and I do not want to see that happen. So refreshing to hear you say that because I, I agree. You know, as much as I'd like to see, I, I just I want to see the team stay here, and I agree. Is if they continue talking about it, uh, who knows? Who knows what could happen? But with, with that said, if if Buffalo was looked at, if Buffalo was considered, um, would the city of Buffalo be ready for an NFL stadium? Well, you know, certainly as mayor of the city of Buffalo and as a resident of the city of Buffalo, I'd love to see a uh, stadium in the city uh there are a number of complications one is an additional one billion dollars at least in cost another complication is uh traffic uh the city is uh densely populated we just saw our first population growth in uh since 1950 we're now a city of over 278,000 people 60,000 people getting into downtown Buffalo and out of downtown Buffalo for a game can uh, present some challenges, uh, certainly more so than Orchard Park, that uh, is not a densely populated community where these games have been played for more than uh, 50 years. So uh, could we handle it? Yes, we could, but there would be a lot of things infrastructure-wise in terms of displacement of residents and businesses that would have to happen for a stadium to be built in the city of Buffalo. And also looking toward next year, actually looking toward uh, the day that we ring in the New Year, New Year's Eve. How is, uh, how is the planning going for the New Year's Eve celebration in downtown Buffalo that is making its return this year? Uh, the planning is going well for ball drop and fireworks display in downtown Buffalo. Uh, we've done this for many years in, in the city. Uh, this will be my 16th, uh, 15th year involved with it. Uh, the only thing that we're watching and watching very closely uh, is COVID-19 infections and the impact that that could have on our community. So we, we want to just remind people if we are able to go forward uh people uh should consider being vaccinated we're recommending that anybody coming down needs to be vaccinated if you're vaccinated uh you should get your booster and if you're coming down uh with young members of the family as young as five years old they should be vaccinated as well uh to keep individuals families and our community safe, an event like Ball Drop, where you could see thousands of people coming to downtown Buffalo, could be become a super spreader event. So that is 
one of our major, major concerns for, for ball drop. We do not want to see that happen, and uh, we will not go forward if we don't think we can do it uh, safely. So all eyes on those, uh, on those case percentages that are coming in right now, Mayor Brown? All, all, all eyes on the case percentages and the guidance from the federal, state, and county governments. Is there any situation where um, the event could turn into a vaccine only? I do realize it's outside, um, but where that space right in front of the ball drop could be a vaccine only if cases continue to rise? Um, We haven't contemplated that. I don't know if we would have the resources to even monitor or enforce uh, vaccine only. What really needs to happen in the city of Buffalo, in Erie County, in western New York, in the state of New York, and across the nation, is people need to make the decision to get vaccinated. That is the way uh, we as a community, we as a nation, uh, will get through COVID-19. With people resisting getting vaccinated, uh, that creates the potential Uh, for continued community spread. Well, Mayor Byron Brown, I I thank you so much for joining me this Sunday. Congratulations on your fifth term, and I look forward to speaking with you in the new year. Thank you very much, Joe, and go Bills. Go Bills, that's right. Big game in about 90 minutes. That is Mayor Byron Brown. Speaking of many things going on in the city, but including that grain elevator uh, that the city has given permission for um, to be torn down by ADM. We'll see how that plays out. Obviously, um, you're going to have some people push back. You're going to have uh, some plans, but... We'll see what happens. As of right now, ADM does have that um, permission, and you heard the mayor talk about it. If you missed any of that interview, it will be available on demand at WBEN.com and on the Odyssey app. When we come back, Dave Leventhal from Business Insider on a five-month investigation into members of Congress. We'll talk about that here on WBEN. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back. It is Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN, the final show, the final segment of 2021. And what better final guest of 2021 than Business Insider's Dave Leventhal? Dave, good morning. Oh, good morning. You, you, you flatter me, Joe. 
Now, Dave, before we get to uh, the main thing we want to talk about here this morning, I do have to ask you about some uh, breaking news or developing news, and that is West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin voting against the Build Back Better. Does that mean that this Build Back Better is, uh, is done for good? Never say never, say never, say never here in Washington, D.C., but this looks to be the closest thing to a death knell for the Democrats writ large and for Joe Biden's agenda on this particular issue, as it probably gets. Now, in a way, this has been telegraphed for months. Joe Manchin has been incredibly problematic for Democrats. But as we've talked about before, and we've been talking here in Washington, D.C., also for months, this wasn't so much a Republican versus Democratic issue as it was Democrat versus Democrat. And, and this was an intramural fight for a long time here, and uh, it's reached its uh, conclusion quite potentially here today. And uh, this would be just an absolutely massive, massive defeat uh, for Joe Biden on uh, an issue that was uh, about as central to his presidency as anything going on. So what's next for Joe Manchin uh, now that, I mean, he is still a Democrat, now that all eyes of the Democrat Party are on him, what's next for him as a senator? It may just be status quo. Uh, he has uh, he said uh, so far that uh, he has no intentions of becoming an independent or becoming a Republican. Of course, these things can change. But uh, at this point, he uh, seems to be very much uh, liking and even loving his position as uh, really the mini president of the United States. Uh, Joe Biden has to go through Joe Manchin in order to get so much done. And this really just strikes back to the, the narrowest of margins in the U.S. Senate. Uh, if there is anything Joe Biden does want done, he's got to have effectively every single Democrat on board in order to push it forward, or he's got to rely on getting some help from the Republican Party, uh, which is uh, very, very unlikely to help him any more than it has to. So as a result, uh, Joe Manchin is uh, just kind of at least from a political standpoint, Joe's sitting pretty and uh, doesn't really have to do anything except be Joe Manchin. So, you know, all the talk is Joe Manchin. Had Kristen, uh, Senator Kristen Sinema, had she changed to a yes vote on this bill? Well, it, it seemed like she was closer to a yes than, uh, than she was a no. And we have some members of the Democratic Party or, in one case, uh, independent uh, Bernie Sanders, who caucuses with the Democratic Party, saying, we need to get everyone on the record. If Joe Manchin is going to torpedo this, if he is going to sink this whole Build Back Better plan that Joe Biden has, then we're going to have a vote anyway, and he's going to have to stand there and cast his vote and do it in front of the whole United States of America. So it remains to be seen whether that actually will happen or if the Democrats are going to uh, fold their hand and, and go home at this point. But I expect that there could still be some significant drama and that we will get real answers to that very question that you pose as to whether it's Kirsten Cinema or anyone else where they truly do stand on this vote. All right, Dave. Now, Business Insider, it's a five-month project. I saw you on uh, Washington Journal talking about this. Conflicted Congress. What was the investigation? How did this start? And uh, where are we at now, five months in? Well, 10 years ago, and when Barack Obama was president, uh, in a very bipartisan fashion, Congress approved a law, and, and President uh, Obama signed it at that point, that was going to serve, at least as they conjured it up, as a defense against corruption in Congress. It was called the Stock Act, and that stands for Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge Act. And really what this was 
in, a, in addition to being a defense of corruption, it was uh, going to try to prevent conflicts of interest in Congress where lawmakers were acting in very public ways, taking votes, writing policy, but yet when it came to their personal finances, were often investing in individual companies that would spend millions of dollars lobbying the federal government or had billions of dollars worth of federal government contracts all tied up. So you could see where there could potentially be a conflict of interest in that case. And our project looked at exactly what had happened with that law 10 years on. And what we had found, Joe, just to give you one highlight, uh, is 52 members of Congress and counting that we found this year violating the provisions of the Stock Act, especially disclosure provisions, and about 182 senior-level congressional staffers who did the same. Much of this information was incredibly difficult to obtain, especially on the staffer end. Uh, we spent hundreds of hours up on Capitol Hill digging through records, and uh, it, uh, in some fairly profound ways, is bleak, uh, especially when it comes to the actual potential conflicts of interest that we did found is, uh, find as part of this project, which I should note uh, includes more than uh, two dozen stories and a rating of every single member of Congress, including uh, the New York State delegation and the uh, Western New York members of Congress, as to how they're doing when it comes to complying with uh, this uh, particular law, the Stock Act. Now, have since this uh, this study had or this report had been released, has anyone in Congress, anyone that was in your report, been asked about the findings of this report? Oh yes, we've uh, we've uh, reached out to uh, literally hundreds of members of Congress. So we have uh, their quotes and the reactions uh, sprinkled out throughout those two dozen stories, but much more recently, just in the past few days, with several members of Congress have either in response to our questions or just uh, uh, apropos of the report itself, have responded to it. Um, and actually, if, if you'll indulge me, I'll, I'll read you two quotes because it shows how uh, kind of uh, things uh, don't necessarily fall into traditional notions of where politicians stand on issues. Uh, this is a quote from uh, one member of Congress uh, when we asked this member, uh, what's your reaction to this? Should members of Congress be able to buy and sell individual stocks in companies? And that member of Congress said, we are a free market economy. They should be able to, to participate in that, meaning members of Congress should be able to trade stocks. Well, there might be some listeners out there who agree with that statement. Uh, they might be surprised to know that that was a quote from Nancy Pelosi, uh, the Democratic Speaker of the House. And uh, another quote for you, quote, there is no reason members of Congress should hold and trade individual stocks when we write major policy and have access to sensitive information, end quote. And other listeners may agree with that statement. Uh, they may also be surprised to know that that is Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, making that statement. So even within the Democratic Party, uh, there's a lot of division. And uh, this is something, Joe, that is not a Democratic or Republican phenomenon. This is not a blue or a red issue. Democrats and Republicans very much uh, trade individual stocks almost on an equal basis. And uh, again, we have found numerous examples of members of Congress on both sides who are, for example, actively trading in defense contractor stocks when they sit on the House or the Senate Armed Services Committee. People who have been incredibly critical of Facebook or other social media or media organizations and themselves are invested in those companies. We found examples of very, very highly rated environmentalist members of Congress who buy and sell oil stocks. And we found critics of tobacco who see it as one of the greatest health concerns and public policy concerns of the country who are invested in companies such as Morris that produce cigarettes, et cetera. 
So lots of different uh, crosswinds, uh, to say the least, uh, when it comes to these particular issues. You know, maybe this is uh, just the way I think, Dave, or I don't know, but I was surprised that only 75 federal lawmakers held stock in uh, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, or Pfizer. Uh, I thought that number would be higher, and these 75, as your um, as your report points out, they were buying and selling them in the early weeks of the pandemic. I mean that that to me is just a clear violation. Um, you know, when we have such a, a health scare, you've got members that you know are supposed to be lo- uh, looking out for us, trying to get even richer. Yeah, and we've gotten a lot of questions uh, from people saying, "Well, how how is this legal?" How, how could lawmakers possibly be doing this? And, and they say so with the knowledge that members of Congress, uh, by and large, are not like you or me or most Americans, because the information that they get uh, oftentimes is secret. It is privileged by virtue of them being a member of Congress. They are privy to information and briefings and whatnot about all portions of the economy, about all different types of events and and happenstance across the country and the world that could very well give them information that could benefit them in terms of the investments that they choose to make or to not make. And so why is this legal? Well, it's legal because Congress says it's legal. When the Stock Act passed back about 10 years ago, there was a push by at least some members of Congress at that time to ban members of Congress for trading, buying, selling individual stocks for that very reason, uh, because they felt as if uh, this would, uh, even if it was just a perceived conflict of interest, raise serious questions about whether lawmakers were acting in the public good or if they were acting in their own private, personal financial good. But that portion of the Stock Act did not come to pass. It was not part of the final bill. And as a result, although there had been uh, some fairly strict disclosure measures that were passed as part of the Stock Act, which require lawmakers to uh, relatively quickly, at least in congressional terms here, Washington terms, disclose any sale or any purchase that they make uh, of a stock, they can still go ahead and do it. So it would, in a way, Congress decided to treat it as if uh, they were just going to be their own cop on the beat and their own referees. Uh, I know Bill's fans are not too crazy about uh, the officiating that has been uh, going on uh, in Buffalo Bills games lately, uh, nor have I. But at the same time, too, imagine if there were no referees at all on the field and that the two teams were left to call their own penalties. Uh, You can imagine how chaotic that situation might be and how things might shape out. Well, in a way, it's a poor analogy, but I'll make it anyway. Congress is kind of its own set of referees. And we also found as part of this reporting, Joe, that the penalties that do exist and by law are on the books for people who violate the Stock Act, they're incredibly minimal and they're also inconsistently applied. So in a couple of extreme cases, we found lawmakers who had millions or even tens of millions of dollars worth of trade that they disclosed weeks or months after a federal mandatory deadline for disclosing them. And uh, despite the fact that they did that, only received a fine of, wait for it here, $200. So uh, (laughs) hardly when you're trading in the millions and tens of millions of dollars, uh, hardly going to be uh, much incentive for anyone to comply by the law or make that a chief priority for themselves. And, and Dave, I would uh, urge anyone, if um, you got the time before the Bills game, to go through this. As Dave said, this isn't not something that's just attacking one side or the other. This is just looking at Congress, looking at lawmakers as a whole. It's it's a, a really in-depth um, 
a really in-depth investigation, a really good read. Uh, you can get that link, uh, businessinsider.com. You can go to Dave's Twitter. It's retweeted on my Twitter. Dave, where does the investigation go from here? Is there any, any follow-up that's going to take place to uh, these findings? Yeah, well, we're continuing to follow up literally as we speak. Uh, just this weekend, my colleague Kimberly Leonard on my team uh, reported that there were two new members of Congress who we have discovered in violation of the Stock Act, both Democrats in this case. And we're going to continue to, uh, especially for those who did not rank highly in our conflicted Congress index, uh, try to determine whether they're going to be doing better, uh, whether there are going to be new laws that are, are offered up. There is a bill in Congress right now that would ban members of Congress from trading, buying, selling individual stocks, but it is languished in committee at the uh, dreaded committee level and uh, is not emerged. Uh, we'll, we'll be tracking to see whether that uh, changes. And I should note, too, that uh, Western New York representatives did not fare particularly well in our rating, our conflicted Congress rating. Uh, for example, Chuck Schumer, we discovered two members of his senior staff who had violated the Stock Act. Uh, Representative Brian Higgins is rated just like Chuck Schumer uh, in our grading system borderline. We have a green, yellow, red rating system uh, for this. So both of those, Brian Higgins and Chuck Schumer, were yellow borderline. And then Representative Chris Jacobs, he himself had violated the Stock Act and done so to a, a relatively significant degree compared to his other colleagues uh, and actually fell into the danger zone, the red danger zone. So uh, none of those three getting a, a green grade for uh, for having a solid record on these particular issues. And you can read about what they told us uh, in our index. Now, this we're talking of Capitol Hill. Dave, do, do these kind of rules, or are there any rules that apply for people that work in the White House? I mean, obviously, not just the president and the vice president, but people of those staffs that also have you know access to information when it comes to, uh, to trading. Is there any kind of rule that governs those in the White House? Yes, and uh, the Stock Act does uh, extend to them, too. In fact, uh, the executive branch, uh, they are much more aggressive when it comes to these types of issues, and they have to disclose information in different ways and sometimes more quickly and more efficiently and more publicly uh, than members of Congress or members of Congress staff. So there are two very different sets of rules, even though we're talking about the exact same type of financial activity. And uh, the White House operates uh, in a way as its, uh, is its own business, uh, and it can make its own rules for this. Donald Trump had different sets of rules for the White House staff than Joe Biden does, and that goes back to every president uh, in modern history. So uh, although we didn't look at the executive branch as part of our conflicted Congress project, we have in the past, and others have too, and have found problems for sure, <laughs> certainly for sure. Um, but oftentimes, uh, Congress is the most opaque. They are the least transparent. Uh, the rules uh, seem to apply to them uh, a little bit less than uh, in other aspects of the government. And I should note, too, that the Wall Street Journal did a wonderful project uh, back uh, several months ago looking at the judiciary, the, the other branch of government, and uh, in federal judges who had all different sorts of conflicts uh, of interest. Uh, so that, that would be something that uh, also falls very much under the umbrella of conflicts of interest, financial conflicts of interest, and I would encourage people to, to read that Wall Street Journal reporting as well. And again, if you want to read uh, the Business Insider Report, Conflicted Congress, you can find that businessinsider.com. Also, at Dave Leventhal or at the Joe Beamer, uh, I have retweeted it as well. Now, Dave, I, I have to ask you before we get out of here, uh, Tuesday, the president is expected to make an Omicron speech um, from the White House. What are we expecting him to announce on Tuesday? 
you're not going to be filled with the kind of Christmas cheer that most people would want. Uh, the situation is uh, not good. I expect Joe Biden to talk about uh, the ways in which uh, it is not good. And uh, I think what you need to pay attention to is the ways in which the federal government uh, intends to step up to uh, fight the latest spread of uh, the Omicron variant. Uh, look to hear from the president about potential funding for uh, enhanced testing, number one. Uh, other uh, types of uh, activity, too, that the federal government is going to help out on. Uh, this is something, again, where, as we've been talking about since the dawn of the pandemic, the federal government does not have the power and it does not have the ability to just wave a magic wand and have everyone in the country do the same thing. This is a very jurisdiction-by-jurisdiction jurisdiction approach all across the country, oftentimes at the state level, oftentimes at the county or the local level, as to how we do things. One school district can, can deal with this uh, in a different way than the school district the next town over. And we know that, and the president knows that. So there will be some very high-level discussions of the response, but don't expect anything that's going to be tantamount to some nationwide mandate. Uh, the president can do that in different applications. Federal transportation is one of them. Expect that OSHA, the federal government uh, occupational health, agency is going to uh, start to get uh, pretty aggressive when it comes to making sure that employers are making good on their promises to for vaccination. Uh, so so it's going to be a patchwork quilt. And uh, I think you're going to hear that in uh, the president's speech uh, when when you analyze what he's saying. Any uh, any more talk of that potential quarantine for international travel uh, that we heard rumored a few weeks ago? Yeah, it, no news uh, at this point that, that I know of or, or am expecting, but at the same time, too, being a incredibly fluid situation, uh, all you need to do is just uh, have, pay attention to what's happening on the border between Canada and the United States to know that there is uh, just a, an incredible amount of turbulence as to what the rules are going to be, uh, whether there's going to be testing involved or not, is there going to be free travel or not and uh, expect the unexpected, expect that the rules will shift and morph and change as, uh, as officials try to respond to the pandemic the best they can. But when it takes two to tango, such as two different countries uh, coming to a resolution, you can have unilateral action. And that may be the United States and Canada, and maybe the United States and uh, its counterparts in Europe or Africa or Asia or wherever it may be. And the answers may be different depending on who we're dealing with. You know, the president always has to do a speech when I'm filling in for Bellavia. Uh, another question before we get out of here, Dave, you know, um, testing is a big thing being talked about in Erie County. We're seeing in Monroe County um, all these free rapid tests being made available to citizens. We're also seeing this in New York City. Where you are, do you have uh, access to free rapid tests? Oftentimes, it depends on where you live in Washington, D.C. I, I live in the district itself, and you can go to libraries and, uh, and oftentimes get tests, but sometimes they have them and sometimes they don't. Uh, they, there are, uh, you kind of have uh, the, the demand being, uh, or you, you have, uh, you know, the, the supply being outstripped by the demand, Joe. And as a result, as more and more people want to get rapid tests, they, they want to do uh, and take a proactive action that's going to hopefully keep them and their families safe, especially during holiday seasons, Christmas gatherings, New Year celebrations. It's something that a lot of people want, and it's very confusing sometimes, and that's just here in Washington, D.C. 
as to whether you can get them, whether you can get them for free. If you can't get them for free, how much is it going to cost? A lot of questions and a lot of confusion. There's no real one single solitary way to go about that. Now, multiply that by every single jurisdiction in the whole country. You've got places in this country who've got nothing or very little, and uh, there's no way to get access to a test such as that. You have other jurisdictions that have purchased a ton or have made them freely, widely available to the population and are in much better shape. So that, too, that falls very much under the heading of uh, a response that is all over the map, quite literally, when it comes to how jurisdictions are dealing with it. All right, Dave, final question. How are the bills going to play today? Uh, despite the offensive line troubles that if you're paying attention to the last few hours, we may be having, I, I think the Bills are locked in and that the second half of the Tampa Bay game is uh, portending good things. I'm going to say Bills by at least 20 points and go out on a limb here. Wow. I hope you are right. I would love to see that, Dave. Well, Dave, uh, thank you for being the final guest of 2021. I hope you and your family have a great holiday season, and I look forward to talking to you many times in 2022. My pleasure, my honor, and the same to you. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to everyone. That is Dave Leventhal from Business Insider, and that is the final hardline of 2021. I hope you have a great holiday season. Enjoy these final two weeks of 2021 with those that mean the most to you. I will be in this chair tomorrow, 10 to 2, filling in for David Bellavia. I will talk to you then here on WBEN. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.